My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 152, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, 2 Kings 11 through 12, Amos 4 through 6, and Psalm 122. 2 Kings 11. When Atalia, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of Jehoram and sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes, who were about to be murdered. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom to hide him from Atalia, so he was not killed. He remained hidden with his nurse at the temple of the Lord for six years while Atalia ruled the land. In the seventh year, Jehoiada sent for the commanders of units of a hundred. The Karaites and the guards had them brought to him at the temple of the Lord. He made a covenant with them and put them under oath at the temple of the Lord. Then he showed them the king's son. He commanded them, saying, This is what you are to do. You who are in the three companies that are going on duty on the Sabbath, a third of you guarding the royal palace, a third at the sewer gate, and a third at the gate behind the guard, who takes turns guarding the temple. And you who are in the other two companies that normally go off Sabbath duty are all to guard the temple of the king. Station yourselves around the king, each of you with weapon in hand. Anyone who approaches your ranks is to be put to death. Stay close to the king wherever he goes. So the commanders of units of a hundred did just as Jehoiada the priest ordered. Each one took his men, those who were going on duty on the Sabbath and those who were going off duty, and came to Jehoiada the priest. Then he gave the commanders the spears and shields that had belonged to King David and that were in the temple of the Lord. The guards, each with a weapon in hand, stationed themselves around the king, near the altar and the temple, from the south side to the north side of the temple. Jehoiada brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. He presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. They anointed him and the people clapped their hands and shouted, Long live the king. When Atalia heard the noise made by the guards and the people, she went to the people at the temple of the Lord. She looked, and there was the king, standing by the pillar as the custom was. The officers and the trumpeters were beside the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Then Atalia tore her robes and called out, Treason! Treason! Jehoiada the priest ordered the commanders of units of a hundred, who were in charge of the troops, bring her out between the ranks and put the sword, anyone who follows her. For the priest had said, She must not be put to death in the temple of the Lord. So they seized her as she reached the place where the horses entered the palace grounds, and there she was put to death. Jehoiada then made a covenant between the Lord and the king and people that they would be the Lord's people. He also made a covenant between the king and the people. All the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They smashed the altars and idols to pieces and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, in front of the altars. Then Jehoiada, the priest, posted guards at the temple of the Lord. He took with him the commanders of hundreds, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and together they brought the king down from the temple of the Lord and went into the palace. 
entering by way of the gate of the guards. The king then took his place on the royal throne. All the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was calm, because Atalia had been slain with the sword at the palace. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem forty years. His mother's name was Zibiah. She was from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years Jehoiada the priest instructed him. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Joash said to the priests, Collect all the money that is brought as sacred offerings to the temple of the Lord. The money collected in the census, the money received from personal vows, and the money brought voluntarily to the temple. Let every priest receive the money from one of the treasurers, then use it to repair whatever damage is found in the temple. But by the twenty-third year of King Joash, the priest still had not repaired the temple. Therefore, King Joash summoned Jehoiada, the priest, and the other priests, and asked them, Why aren't you repairing the damage done to the temple? Take no more money from your treasurers, but hand it over for repairing the temple. The priests agreed that they would not collect any more money from the people and that they would not repair the temple themselves. Jehoiada, the priest, took a chest and bore a hole in its lid. He placed it beside the altar, on the right side as one enters the temple of the Lord, The priest who guarded the entrance put into the chest all the money that was brought to the temple of the Lord. Whenever they saw that there was a large amount of money in the chest, the royal secretary and the high priest came, counted the money that had been brought into the temple of the Lord, and put it into bags. When the amount had been determined, they gave the money to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. With it, they paid those who worked on the temple of the Lord, the carpenters and builders, the masons and stonecutters. They purchased timber and blocks of dressed stone for the repair of the temple of the Lord and met all the other expenses of restoring the temple. The money brought into the temple was not spent for making silver basins, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, or any other articles of gold or silver for the temple of the Lord. It was paid to the workers who used it to repair the temple. They did not require an accounting from those to whom they gave the money to pay the workers because they acted with complete honesty. The money from the guilt offerings and sin offerings was not brought into the temple of the Lord. It belonged to the priests." About this time, Haziel, king of Aram, went up and attacked Gath and captured it. Then he turned to attack Jerusalem. But Joash, king of Judah, took all the sacred objects dedicated by his predecessors, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, the kings of Judah, and the gifts he himself had dedicated, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and of the royal palace, and he sent them to Haziel, king of Aram, who then withdrew from Jerusalem." As for the other events of the reign of Joash and all he did, are they not written in the books of the annuals of the kings of Judah? His officials conspired against him and assassinated him at Beth Milo, on the road down to Silla. The officials who murdered him were Josabad, son of Shimeath, and Josabad, son of Shomer. He died and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. And Amaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. Amos chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, and women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, Bring us some drinks. The Sovereign Lord has sworn by His holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out toward Harmon. 
declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your freewill offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you, and what the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord." Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you, as I did in Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel, and because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who created the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them and Bethel will have no one to quench it. These are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turned midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone masons, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are our offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil and love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness. 
not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel, you have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kelneh and look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares... I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortress. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If 10 people are left in one house, they too will die. And if the relative who come to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them, ask anyone who might be hiding there, is anyone else with you? And he says, no, then he will go on to say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow the sea with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Karnayam by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Libo Hamath to the valley of Arabah. Psalm 122. I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the throne of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. The story we read today from 2 Kings 11 through 12 is connected to 2 Chronicles 22 and 23, which is why it sounds familiar. Let's review. 
Atalia was the daughter of the northern king Ahab and his wife Jezebel, the Phoenician high priestess of Baal. Atalia married the southern king Jehoram and had a son named Ahaziah, who was the successor of Joram, and this made her queen. Because remember, in the ancient Israelite time, the queen was the mother of the king. When her son Ahaziah was killed, and remember the reason he was killed was because he was a descendant of King Ahab and he was supporting the northern king at that time, whom God had appointed now Jehu. And Jehu, remember, was like annihilating. He was to succeed the northern king and end the line of Ahab and Baal or all false worship. So her son died. And Dr. Conkle's commentary suggests Atalia usurped the throne with the support of the military after Jehu's success in killing so many prospective successors to the throne in the northern kingdom and obviously this one in the south too. But then similarly, Atalia herself went after killing her own grandsons and anyone who may prospectively take the southern kingdom's throne. So crazy stuff happening. However, as Dr. Conkle says, God would continue to deliver on his promise to preserve a lamp for David, and he divinely rescues one of Ahaziah's sons, Atalia's grandsons, Joash, with the agency of Atalia's daughter, Ahaziah's sister, Jehosheba, who was also married to the priestess Jehoiada, as referenced in 2 Chronicles 22, verse 11. They hid Joash with his nurse in a room, and then, the way it's written, it looks like they moved him to the temple of the Lord for about six years. Then, when Joash was just seven years old, the priest Jehoiada, with what seems to be the support of the Levitical priests, remember some of them were participating in specific roles in the priesthood, and the other part of them were acting as guards of the priesthood and the temple. They all collectively appointed Joash as king of the southern kingdom, where the capital, remember, is Jerusalem, and they're in the temple. Atalia is too late to stop this ceremony. She is being displaced. The usurper was usurped. So her six-year reign was coming to an end as Joash turned seven, and the priests, particularly Jehoiada, says, nope, This is who God's appointing as king. So she's put to death. And Baal worship and the leader of that false worship was also executed. So it seems like the people are having a turning point and returning to Yahweh God. Then it seems that there were attempts to repair the temple of the Lord by way of census taxes, voluntary gifts or vows to give money, and other means of income. Dr. Conkle points to these three methods being ordered and used in the past as if we remember Exodus 30. Uh, verses 11 to 16, Leviticus 27, verses 1 through 8, and 2 Kings 12, 16. As before, what seems to be the best craftsmen experts were hired to make the repairs to the temple. So there's this differentiation happening. There was this interesting like giving of money, but then a pause. No one was actually doing it. And then there was this qualification that it wasn't for any sort of articles within the temple, but it was for repair of the temple itself. And there was that. I love that part about that. They didn't need to do any accounting. They gave it to the person that was managing the repairs and people were being honest and how they were working on it. I thought that was really neat. There was also that one-liner, which is uh, a reminder, not complete obedience, not Shema. When King Joash, you know, they ended Baal worship, but then they still let these high places, which Dr. Conkle points was still calf worship. 
in these certain places. So mm, that's still not complete heart of Shema and behavior obedience, right? And their neighboring enemies are getting stronger. The Arameans, their military might and power and their direct access, their proximity to Jerusalem is encroaching. And they demand and King Joash abides. He pays a massive tribute, giving the money from the temple, from the people, from his own palace to try to preserve the capital and temple of the Lord. It works for now. So there's like a pause or pin in it. And then in a heartbreaking turn of events, Joash, who seemed to be an okay king leader by way of the influence of the priest Jehoiada, made a sharp wrong turn, it seems, killing Jehoiada's son after Jehoiada's death. And in turn, his own people kill him when he was wounded by the Arameans. So that's the end of his reign. Then we move to Amos, and in Amos, we see this contrast in accusations against Israel. So Dr. Mackey explains how the prophet Hosea, which we already read, brought accusations of not revering God by honoring their covenantal or like marital vows and the rhythms of what's required in that kind of relationship. Whereas here in Amos, the accusation is about hypocritical worship, where they're making sacrifices to God, but at the same time, being socially unjust and corrupt. So there's this hypocrisy, right? So as we recall, Hosea is about idolatry and adultery, and Amos is about the hypocrisy of worship, where you're like acting as if you're in the worship of God, or maybe as we would say today, Christian culture, but it's not transformational. It's superficial, and it's not permeating all that we do. In chapter four, we read the accusations of self-indulgence that led them to materialism. We see in chapter five, this emphasis on seeking, seek him and live. Seek good and not evil and live. What we seek, we become. So it's like God gives us over if we just continually choose other gods or ourselves. And we know that that leads to a type of darkness that is really tragic. And as Dr. Mackey writes, what Amos is pointing out is that true worship results in justice. When I was younger, I remember listening to reformist arguments, uh, maybe you do too, about whether we're saved by faith or works. And now as an adult, I question the question, why is the question forcing a trade-off? Is this the best question? Is the question being asked by the authors of the Bible? Is it what the scriptures are emphasizing? Because a trade-off between faith and our behavior, is that really what's happening? What we say we believe and what we do, is there really a trade-off between those? I don't know about you, but from what I'm reading, Shema includes our hearts and our behaviors. Our hearts transformed, and therefore it's obedient to God. It just like has to be like a reflex by putting God on display in our behavior, Right. No, it seems somewhat obvious that scripture is not supporting and it's making it clear we do not deserve or earn God's blessing. It's his love and his mercy that reaches out to us. The question is about our response and our response seems to include, the critically include inclusion of our whole in capitals, W-H-O-L-E, our whole hearts and behaviors responding to God. That's kind of captured in that Jewish repeated concept of Shema. 
I'm concerned about this untethering of our hearts and behaviors. Because I've taught courses like consumer behavior, I'm familiar with the way we learn that leads to a way of living. And we can learn by first thinking, then feeling, then behaving, or by feeling and then thinking and then behaving, or reacting out of a habit to something, then thinking, then feeling, and so on. I'm also familiar with cognitive consistency principles in psychology, where we change or are willing to change our beliefs, attitudes, perceptions, and actions to achieve this justification of thought because we want this consistency. Another key psychology principle is that of attitude, which is the sum of our thoughts, feelings, and behavioral experiences. These have to be consistent or resolved to have a holistic evaluation of something as positive or negative, good, bad, better, best, worst. These are important ideas for me to unpack, but also repack and remember that by our understanding of human psychology, there is a connection and a need for agreement consistently between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And when they're not aligned, we seek to resolve them. The question is, how and what is the guide? What are we using as the justification for shifting what we think, feel, or do? What is the end goal? I think the point the prophets and forefathers of Israel were learning and making as clear as possible was that remembering the story, God's story, the real story that is still unfolding today gets us focused on who God is and what is truly important. And from this lens, our hearts soften. We remember the story. Our thoughts focus in on God and what he's called us into. And it triggers the right behavioral response. Or we cry out to God to fortify our behavior, to soften our hearts, and to focus our thoughts on remembering who he is and the story we're in. Because we struggle so much with this, we know that Jesus is coming. He's going to make a way, give us a gift of the Holy Spirit to be our advocate, which we know happens in the New Testament, helping us with Shema, because this is so hard for us to do, to tether these together, to make him our justification. And the church is there, too, to help us remember this story and who God is and Jesus being the center of the church and the Eucharist. It helps us to remember the story. There is hope and there is warning here to avoid drift or notice the red flags. Do not engage in the disembodied worship, but we worship with our whole selves from a transformed heart and all that God has given us. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.